Power Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's wide range of beautiful wood designs can be painted, stained, or unfinished to complement any decor. Put no money down, no payment, and no interest for up to 24 months. Visit PowerWI.com. Expires 9-30-2022. Certain restrictions apply to showroom for details. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Well, that's nice of them. If you went to the Packers game this Sunday and you want to buy a beer or a hot dog or something like that, you didn't have the choice of using cash because that is, that is of course, the latest thing. And we talked about this at American Family Field on Sunday. If you went to the, the game and you wanted to buy a beer or something, you couldn't because they don't take cash, and the, the system crashed. I guess the Internet was fine, but the vendor who – all the, the vendors that walk around with those, like, handheld things, that system cra- crashed, so it could not process any orders. So effectively, with the exception of being able to go to one or two stands, you, you couldn't buy anything because, of course, we don't allow people to use cash anymore. Give me a break. But, it, but at least – okay, at American Family Field on Sunday – at least you weren't able to buy something, all right? But that's you, you didn't get mischarged or anything like that. If you went to Lambeau Field, the good news is that you were able to use your credit cards, and they're cashless as well. They're cashless as well. The good news is you were allowed to use your credit cards to buy that $12 beer. You know, they're Okay, but but here's here's the bad news. If you bought the twelve dollar beer, they charged you twenty four bucks for it because they apparently were routinely double charging people. So you know, it's like, all right, that's adding insult to injury. I'm buying the twelve dollar beer. I'm buying the twelve dollar hot dog, and I get a bill for forty eight bucks on this because apparently they were the system was working. Actually, it was working too well. They were double charging people for this. So. All right, the the concessionaire has now come out and they have said, well, fans may notice that these charges as pending in recent transactions on their credit cards or debit cards, but any duplicate charges will not be completed. And if the situation is not resolved, you can contact Delaware North to address that. So (laughs) that's, that's big of them. That's big of them. You've spent all this money. They've double-charged you, but they're going to go look through their records, and they're going to make sure that they don't put through the the duplicate charges. Um, But, of course, these are the same people that double-charged you in the first place. My only advice would be, I guess, to you, if you were attending Lambeau Field in the game, I'd be checking your credit card statement really, 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 really closely if you bought anything to make sure that you not only— you know, it was if you decide you wanted to buy the overpriced drink, that's great, but that you weren't double charged for the drink. That's number one. Secondly, my advice continues to be, and I understand this is a pet peeve, and I understand that we're moving towards a cashless society, but you know, we're not ready for that yet. And whether it's 
Summerfest or whether it's American Family Field or Lambeau Field, you know, you should continue to give customers the option of being able to pay with cash. And the truth of the matter is, if the idea is we're doing this because it helps us with inventory control and it helps prevent employee, employee fraud because, you know, you can't pocket money. Okay, if, if that's the argument, just think of how much money they lost at American Family Field on Sunday when the technology screwed up and people couldn't buy concessions. I mean, that's, you know, you, you've got, it was a Yankee game, I don't know, you probably got 40,000 people there, and the vast majority of them who wanted to spend their money, they couldn't because of this crash. I, I, that that would be a lot of employee theft. Plus, there is the general inconvenience to the public by requiring them to use credit cards a, as well. So I, I think maybe this is a lesson that all these different venues need to rethink. And I understand why they, they think that this is cool and the technology is great. But if you talk to the fans, many, many fans, not all, but many, many fans hate this. You talk to the vendors, I think vendors to a man or a woman will tell you they hate it because, as we've talked about before, it's a lot slower. And now we know there are these problems with it, including double charges or not being able to charge at all. Maybe the technology, I think the best way to describe this is an idea whose time has not yet come. All right. New mayor. And in this case, the, the new boss sounds a lot like the old boss. The new boss of Milwaukee, Mayor Cavalier Johnson, rolls out his, his budget. And the headline written in the local newspaper is, in first budget, Milwaukee Mayor Johnson reluctantly calls for cut in sworn police officers, fire engine, and library hours. We're cutting the library hours. We're cutting the fire engines. We're cutting the cops. Now, does that sound familiar Well, if it does, it's because that's what you heard from Barrett all the time as well. And why do they say they have to cut it? Well, because we just don't have enough money and, you know, we're not getting our share of shared revenues from the state. So there's nowhere we can cut. So we've got to go after the cops, the fire engines and the libraries. Now, let's start with just a, a basic observation here. This is one of the oldest tricks in the political book. What it is is when you are trying to argue or plead poverty or whatever, and you've got this giant city budget, if he were to come out and say, we are going to get rid of four mid-level managers at the Department of Public Works, not to pick on the DPW, but if we were going to get rid of four mid-level managers at the, to- at the Department of, of Public Works who each make $80,000 a year, nobody would care. People would say, well, oh, you, know, <laughs> you probably don't need those four. Who, who cares about this? If Cavalier Johnson were to say, you know, we've got this giant personnel department in, at the city of Milwaukee, and we're going to get rid of three personnel specialists who are making sixty-five grand a year plus benefits for a savings of north of $200,000. If he would say, we're, we, we've got to cut a couple personnel people, nobody would care about that. And the list goes on and on. You could go through department after department after department.
after department, and you could say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna cut this person, or we're gonna trim this, or we're gonna cut back on these type of things, and people would go, yeah, all right, that that that's that's fine. It seems like it's reasonable, but that is not what politicians do. See, because they are trying for the headline, and in this case, you know, they get the headline writer to guppy in on this. So what do they say? They don't say we're getting rid of a couple human resource people. No offense to them. We don't say we're getting rid of a couple mid-level managers. We don't say, you know, we're cutting in these areas where people don't care about. What do we say? Well, we've got to cut the number of cops. Because people go, how can you cut the number of cops? We've got to cut the number of fire trucks. How can you cut the number of fire trucks? Well, you can because it is a choice that the mayor makes instead of making cuts that you could do otherwise. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I I want to, without doing too much effort, I'm going to give you a way, an easy way, that you could save every one of those police officer positions if you wanted to do that. And then we're going to open up the phone lines for discussion. Um, Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Factory. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, the question is, will we be fooled again? You know, and this is this is one of the oldest tricks in the book. It's what Tom Barrett did on a regular basis, and now Cavalier Johnson is taking a book, a page from the Barrett playbook. All right, let's plead poverty. And look, there's no question that the city of Milwaukee has issues. The pension issue is out of control. The, the pension is, is, is eating up a huge chunk of the budget. So what do you do? You come out and you try to alarm the general public. You say, okay, here's what we're going to have to do. We just don't have enough money. We've got to get rid of cops, and we've got to get rid of fire engines, and we've got to get rid of libraries. And and what, what happens? Well, you know, Milwaukee, which is, of course, you know, car theft capital of the United States, the number of homicides are through the roof. As we'll talk about a little bit later, the number of violent crimes do not show any sign of abating. So you've got crime that is out of control. Everybody thinks you need some public safety when it comes to firefighters and libraries. Well, okay, let's try to identify something that really hits home. We're going to threaten to close libraries and we're going to cut back the computer services. And then everybody goes, oh my God, well, we, we use these libraries and we use the computer services. Oh, okay. You know, fair enough. Let, let's talk about what apparently Cavalier Johnson doesn't want to cut. And, and let's figure out where you could get maybe some savings. Let's start with the debacle that is the hop. Now, remember how the streetcar was supposed to be self-sufficient and things like that? And, of course, it, it hasn't worked out. We spend, we, the taxpayers of the city of Milwaukee, the taxpayers of the city of Milwaukee spend over $3 million a year to take that air trolley and send it around the 2.1-mile loop, all right? $3 million a year. I ask this rhetorically. How many co- – and, and that's, again, that, that's, money, that's money that has to come out of this, the general budget to pay for this. So I ask rhetorically, how, how, many, how many cops could you hire – for for three million dollars. I mean, seriously, and that's a recurring expense. That that's every year. 
how how let's say you cut back the hop operation in half so you only lose 1.5 million i ask rhetorically how many police officers could you you know keep on the budget for a million five even if you don't want to completely eliminate the hop all right but that's that's kind of chump change compared to some of the other stuff that's going on should we talk about the biggest boondog well that's not might not be fair because there's so many large boondoggles but let's talk about something else How about the Office of Violence Prevention, OVP? All right. The annual budget of the Office of Violence Prevention, which, of course, is a completely and totally dysfunctional agency. They just got rid of the the head of it. Nobody knows what they do. And there's no, aside from take trips and go to conferences and things like that, there's no quantifiable evidence that the Office of Violence Prevention does a damn thing to make the streets of Milwaukee any safer. The annual budget for the Office of Violence Prevention, $3.7 million per year. That's the annual budget. But wait, there's more. The annual um, the Office of Violence Prevention is getting another $8 million from the state in COVID relief funds and another $3 million from the city's allocation. So that's over in addition to the $3.7 million a year that the Office of Violence Prevention gets for things that nobody knows what they do. They're also in line, at least short-term, for another $11 million bucks. So short-term, $14, $15 million. How many libraries could you keep open for $15 million? How many extra police officers could you hire for $15 million? But, of course, we don't talk about that because, well, we, we don't want to have to eliminate these sort of things. Even, let's say you cut the Office of Violence Prevention in half because we have no clue what they do. You cut their budget in half and you take half of that money, the 3.7 that they get normally, the $11 million in just the, the special money that they're supposed to be able to come in with. Let, let's say you just take, take $5 million of that and put it towards cops. How many cops can you hire for that $5 million? How many fire trucks can you keep in operation for that $5 million? How many libraries can you keep open? And, and this is, again, it's just the tip of the iceberg. I could go department by department by department and suggest all right, if you've got to trim things, maybe this is where you trim them. But of course, this is not how the politicians operate. The politicians say, let's figure out the stuff that would be the most onerous to people. And let's say we're cutting cops, we're cutting fire stations, we're cutting um, libraries, instead of cutting the middle managers or cutting the programs that don't document, don't, don't by at least on their face, don't appear to do anything at all, or continuing to operate the air trolley at a, at a cost of $3 million a year. Okay, our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My guess is, if you took a look at the city of Milwaukee budget, and I just identified two things here, my guess is you could go through all sorts of departments and you could find money that if you had to make the cuts would be much better, at least much less onerous for the city than cutting 
cops or cutting fire office or fire departments. But of course, that's not what the conversation is because that doesn't make the headline. You don't get the headline in the Journal Sentinel saying, "Hey, we're getting rid of some middle managers in the HR department, and we're you know we're we're cutting you know we're going to only be able to go on half as many trips at the Office of Violence Prevention." That doesn't get the headline that you want if you're trying to say, oh, it's not all our fault, it's all the state of Wisconsin's, 855-616-1620. All right, do you believe that firefighters, fire trucks, and police officers, should those be first on the chopping block? Because that's really what it comes down to. We discuss in a moment. Okay, so Cavalier Johnson, the, the, the Milwaukee Police Department is already a couple hundred down. He wants to cut like another 20 positions. O- on average... It, it, it The estimates vary, but for a million dollars, you can hire about eight police officers, maybe seven, you know, maybe nine. But let, let's let's work with the number of eight. That's a million bucks. OK, you cut the hop funding in half. All right. That that's 12 officers. The Office of Violence Prevention, which is going to be getting in the neighborhood of 14 million dollars. Don't do away with it. I'm not even arguing doing away with it, although it's tough to justify existence, but cut it in half. Take $7 million, apply it, just in my example, to the police department, and then you've got, you know, you've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 police officers that you've hired. Boom, the problem goes away. But that's, and you could do that. You could do that item by item by item by going through the budget and identifying things that do not impact on public safety that would not make headlines. And see, one of our texters makes this point. School boards are notorious for doing this when they want to pass referendums. What they do is they say, "Okay, if we don't get this referendum passed, we're doing away with all athletics. What do you mean you're doing away with? Oh, we can't have all our athletics done away with. Instead of saying, hey, we've got like four mid-level bureaucrats that are all pulling in $135,000 a year plus benefits. Well, if you say we're going to get rid of the mid-level bureaucrats, nobody's going to be up in arms. But if you say we're getting rid of athletics, people revolt. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, Jeff, it's uh, it's definitely politics. Um, Obviously, most rational people would never want to cut the police and fire department, but there is so much waste inside those programs, I believe, that, you know, no one even really wants to go on record saying, oh, we want to cut that because, oh, you're, you know, you're a bad person. But there is, I believe, so much waste in some of those programs like the Office of Violence Prevention, where they may have been good intentioned at first, but in some ways they're going to serve themselves. Yes, no, Mike. No, thanks. You're you're right. That that's that that's the idea. And it's look. And I'm, I, you could apply this. We, years and years and years ago at, at TMJ, we had we had a guy who worked in our accounting department. We called him Vicious Bill. And we, whenever we would go through this exercise and you'd have some of these government agencies that would plead poverty, we, we'd always have this thing where we, we'd want to show the, the, the municipal budget or whatever to Vicious Bill, who applied the sort of accounting look that he did in the private sector for our company. And, you know, it's a turn Vicious Bill look, Bill loose on some of these budgets and, and see how much money he can save. Or or at least, at least offer alternatives instead of we're cutting the fire department, we're cutting the cops. This do not be fooled again. This is a common stunt. And look, and I, I take no position on you know whether Milwaukee should get more shared revenue or not. I do say this is a cheap stunt when you identify we're cutting cops, but we're not going to identify all these other areas that maybe would not attract public attention.
All right. Another Tuesday, another set of polls that are out. Last week, you had the Marquette University Law School poll that dropped. And again, you, I, I present these polls. You can take them with a grain of salt. I think there's, as we've talked about before, I think pollsters are having a lot of trouble identifying voters, and, and particularly, I think, Republican voters. And that's why in Wisconsin, for whatever reasons, the support of candidates in the Republican in, in general elections has, has, has been underreported. I mean, Hillary Clinton was going to beat Donald Trump. Remember, if you believe the polls, that didn't happen. Joe Biden was going to crush Donald Trump. That didn't happen. Russ Feingold was going to beat uh, Ron Johnson. That, that didn't happen. But again, take them for what they're worth. Uh, two new polls out. Uh, the Emerson poll, Wisconsin Senate, that has Johnson 49, Barnes 44. Ron Johnson, I'm sorry, Johnson 48, Barnes 44. Johnson up by four points. Then you've got the um, Spectrum News Siena poll. That has the race closer. That has it Johnson 47, Barnes 48. So Barnes plus one. Again, that's that's within the margin of error, which would be the same numbers that the uh, the poll from Marquette had. They had it reversed. But that's a very, very close race within the margin of error. Then um, let's see. The Emerson poll for the governor's race, Tony Evers 45, Tim Michaels 43. So, again, consistent kind of with what the Marquette poll was. And the Spectrum News Siena poll, this is the one that had it closer between Johnson and Barnes. This has Evers 49, Michaels 44, Evers up five. It seems that the Spectrum Siena, New Spectrum News Siena poll, that seems to put the Democrats a little doing better than the Emerson poll does. Again, you can take it for a grain of salt for what it is, but those, those are the numbers. Bottom line is, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, on in the program, it, it's it's going to be a close race one way or the other. And as we get closer to the election, the attacks are going to be more and more brutal, and you need to be aware of it. Okay. Said beforehand, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the mayor's on to something. Maybe, you know, it doesn't, maybe we don't need the cops, you know, because, you know, maybe we've got a handle on, on crime or maybe not. For those of you who haven't been keeping score at home, I, I do this. Since Friday, between Friday and this morning, 20 people were shot in the city of Milwaukee. 20. Three people died. Two were teenagers. Uh, let me see. This is the way uh, Channel 12 reports it. Uh Milwaukee Police Department says 20 people were shot between Friday evening and Monday afternoon. Three people died. Two of them were teenagers. One of them, a 16-year-old, found dead with a gunshot wound in a vacant house near 38th and Hadley Street Monday. All right. um, Then let's see. Let's pull out a couple of these others. Um, uh, seven, Seven of those shootings were on Monday. Only two people were arrested. You've got the kid that was, again, the 16-year-old was found dead in the vacant home. Um, that's on Hadley. It had been vacant for a long time. You've got a 17-year-old killed in a shooting near 71st and Hampton in Milwaukee. That one occurred Saturday night into Sunday morning. Police looking for unknown suspects. You've got a woman who on Monday, just after midnight, so this would be Sunday night, Monday morning, 23-year-old woman was shot near 27th and Capitol um, in 
That would be in a McDonald's parking lot. And, and it goes on and on and on. And to the point that it, it's now become that the murders have been so commonplace that even a 16 year old kid being murdered on the street, it happens so regularly that, you know, it gets it doesn't even get a column inch like in the local newspaper. It's like, okay, this is this is happening again and again and again. So the, the number of shootings and particularly the number of people, young people who are involved as victims and young people who are involved as perpetrators continues to just be off the charts. Remember yesterday we were talking about the car theft problem in the city of Milwaukee, and we kind of reiterated the numbers that if if you steal a car, the reality is the the overwhelming chance is you're not going to be caught. That's just the truth. But if you are caught, we know that about 50% of those who are caught are under the age of 16. So you, you now have this this epidemic where you have 12 and 13 and 14 and 15-year-olds who are just out stealing cars for whatever reason. And, and the problem, of course, is that unless when they are fleeing from the police in the stolen car, they blow through a red light and hit and kill somebody, there, there's not going to be any sort of accountability at all. And you are now seeing this play out in other areas as well. Th- this is a story that got my attention. Fox 6 News reports it. This is yesterday morning, shortly after 7 in the morning. He said, let me, let me just kind of think about where you were at 7 o'clock this morning. You know, maybe you were getting up, you were getting ready. You, you might have already been at work. And in my case, I had to take my car in to get the oil changed, got it serviced, got an appointment at 7 o'clock in the morning. So I'm driving through the mean streets of Milwaukee to go to the auto dealer. All right, well, yesterday, 7 o'clock in the morning, a Department of Public Works employee was— um, on, on Reservoir and, and Buffum, which is, you know, you don't necessarily think of that as being a a particularly bad neighborhood. It's kind of like the Milwaukee Brewers Hill neighborhood. A DPW worker, he's at work. So he, he's in the official car. He's on the street. Did I mention it's 7 o'clock on a Monday morning? All right, here's the story. A Milwaukee Department of Public Works employee was robbed at gunpoint near Reservoir and Buffum on Monday, September 19th. Police say around 7 a.m., the DPW worker was robbed at gunpoint and shots were fired into his vehicle. Um, According to police, the same group that robbed the DPW worker committed another crime just minutes later. Surveillance shows the car pulling up to the DPW worker. The worker tried to run as three people hopped out of the vehicle. Did I mention it's 7 o'clock in the morning? So you've got this city worker on the street doing his job. It's 7 o'clock in the morning, and a car pulls up. Three people hop out of the vehicle. They punched the man in the face as he tried to run, and he falls to the ground. The video shows the criminals ran over the man's um, work uh, stuff before they ended up driving off. Um, then, of course, the police say the same group just drove south of Brewers Hill two minutes later to Pleasant and Jackson. 
again holding some people at gunpoint and firing a shot at a car with someone inside. Luckily, no one was hit by gunfire in either incident. So you've got the the scenario now. You've got the DPW worker. He's on the street at 7 o'clock in the morning. Car pulls up. These three thugs get out. They punch him. They fire a shot into the car. They rob him. Then they get in the car. They drive, and they come, and they rob another couple a couple minutes later at 7 o'clock in the morning. All right. The police are looking for them. They caught one of them. Dazzling detail about this story. Not a surprise. Was this a 30-year-old guy with a lengthy criminal record? No. Was it a 24-year-old person, you know, on parole, released early by Tony Evers? No. Was it a 19-year-old guy on bail waiting for, you know, his trial on various charges? Nope. The one person in the group that they caught. Now, these are people who've jumped and attacked a city worker fired shots into his vehicle and then go and they hold somebody, they rob somebody else at gunpoint, fire shots at their vehicle. The one person that they caught, a 16-year-old, a 16-year-old. It's 7 o'clock in the morning in mid-September where it seems to me, I mean, school is in session. Now, I don't know what time MPS schools start, for example, but but my guess is normally at the age of 16, people would be getting ready for school. But oh, no, no, on the mean streets of Milwaukee, you're out cruising with your thug buddies. And I'm assuming the other kids or other people are juvenile, but they could be adult, but it doesn't matter. You're out cruising with your thug buddies, you're armed to the teeth, and you're looking for easy victims, which includes, I guess, a DPW worker who's going about his business, and then another couple who are out on the street at 7 o'clock in the morning. The kid they caught is 16 years old. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I understand I sound like a broken record on this sometimes, but it you know, people have to pay attention. There has to be a sea change. That could have been you. Maybe it could have been your spouse. Maybe it could have been your friends who all they did was they're getting ready to go to work. They're out on the street and they happen to be, I don't know, in the path of this tornado, which is these juvenile criminals who are driving around armed to the teeth at seven o'clock on a Monday morning looking for people to prey on. Law-abiding, decent people should not be forced to live in this sort of environment. And the problem is, number one, the the crime is so pervasive. There's so many. All these different stories I was talking about with the shootings and things like that, they all end with the police are looking for suspects. Police are looking for suspects. I'm not faulting the cops. There's so much crime, they can't keep up with it. And Mayor Johnson's going to cut the number of cops on the street. You know, give me a break about that. But that's not where the whole problem lies, because it'll be interesting to see. What do you do with this 16-year-old kid? you got a 16-year-old that's involved in an armed robbery. Now, I don't know what his background is, although I'm guessing this isn't his first run-in with the law. But I guess the, the bigger point is, for the, the small percentage of these punks that end up getting caught doing this, the idea that they go into the catch-and-release juvenile system is appalling to me. There should be a policy that if you commit a crime with a firearm and you are a minor— you are waived into adult court. 
period. And if you need to change the law to take away the discretion of the district attorney's office to allow the case to go into juvenile court or take away the power of the judges to keep the case in juvenile court, it's past time to do that. If you commit a crime with a gun, shouldn't you be treated as an adult? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And my answer is not just yes, but heck yes. Coming up in about 15 minutes, I want to get your reaction to the latest orchestrated attack against Tim Michaels by, well, I think it's the Evers campaign, it's Democrats, and it's their allies in the media. I'll share it with you, and we will discuss. Right now, we're talking about, the again, the out-of-control juvenile crime rate. But what caught my attention in all the various shootings is yesterday morning, 7 o'clock in Brewers, the Brewers Hill area, there's there's a, a DPW worker. He's out on the street, 7 o'clock in the morning. Car pulls up with three people jump out. One of them we now know is 16 years old. They're, they're armed. The guy tries to run. They punch him out. They fire shots into his car. They rob him. They drive off. A couple minutes later, they find another couple out on the street a couple blocks away. Same scenario. They jump out of the car. They fire a shot. They fire shots into the vehicle. They rob these people, and they drive off. And, and again, it, it's a 16. One of them is a 16-year-old. My guess is somebody was saying, well, they're probably on their way to school. Yeah, this is, we're, we're heading. This is we, we got class at 745. That's why we only got a couple people that we can we have time to rob but my point is this is another example of juvenile crime just completely and totally out of control and i believe that because the system just isn't working here what we need to do is change the law and simply say all right you commit a crime with a gun you're going to be treated as an adult oh they're going to send this 16 year old and treat him like an adult yeah if you're old enough to carry a gun punch somebody out and fire shots into their car yes you are old enough to be punished like an adult jeff i'm a retired DPW worker from municipality south of Milwaukee. I was always jumpy as heck in certain areas of town while doing my job. It's the kids, by the way, that scared me a lot more than the adults. Um, yeah. Jeff, I remember a couple of years ago, a DPW worker was fired for having a licensed gun on his person. They can't even protect themselves anymore. Very sad. Yeah, that's um, we, we've had a couple stories like that o- over the years. And, you know, and this and this has come up in a couple other contexts as well, where you've had like construction site workers in Milwaukee, not public employees, but construction site workers who've been robbed many, many times because, People, they're, they're, they're targets. People want to rob their trucks and things like that because they've got tools in the back of trucks. And, and remember all the outrage that a couple guys, they were carrying guns because they wanted to protect themselves when they were working in high crime areas of the city. And then you had aldermen who were all upset. Oh, I can't believe this sends the completely wrong message that somebody who's doing work for the city would come to work armed. Well, th- this is why, I mean, note to the politicians, this is why that people who are required to be out on the mean streets of Milwaukee at 7 o'clock in the morning. This is why that maybe some of them would want to be able to protect themselves and carry firearms because, you know what, the bad guys have the guns. The bad guys are going to be armed, and maybe just maybe some of the people, whether they're working um, as contractors with the city or for people who are subcontracted by the city or city employees, maybe this is one of these situations that if you're going to send them out on the road and put them effectively in harm's um, way, 
Maybe this is the, you know, situation um, with is this. Jeff, nothing's going to happen to these kids until you start sending them to jail in another state where they don't know anyone like they used to do in Detroit or Chicago. Um, yeah, I, I, well, I in, until there is a penalty, Jeff, they're committing adult-type crimes. They deserve strong punishment. Um yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, Jeff, no money to keep the streets safe, but they have a trolley. You know, do you know what the budget for the HOP operations is? Yeah, I did. I was sharing it. The HOP is um, the, the city loses $3 million a year that comes out of general revenue to run the HOP. Jeff, if a weapon is involved, I agree. Move them to adult court. You do adult crimes. You get treated as an adult. Hopefully, that would at least make some kids think twice about committing a crime with a weapon. One would hope so. Well, at the very least... At the very least, if you treat them like an adult and they go to some sort of confinement for a few years, at least they're not on the streets for those few years to, let's Tony Evers lets them out on parole, they're not out on the streets to prey on, on people. I'm just, what's frustrating about this is crime has gotten so out of control that we are all victims. And, and that's just, that's the reality. Uh, at 7 o'clock in the morning, a DPW worker all right, he's just. I'm sure the last thing he's thinking as he's going about his job is that I'm going to have a bunch of punks come up, punch me in the face, fire shots at me at seven o'clock in the morning. Same thing true for the couple out on the street. The bottom line is we are becoming an area, a region of victims because the politicians are allowing it to happen, the prosecutors are allowing it to happen, the judges are allowing it to happen, and that's just flat out not good enough. When we come back. I want to talk about the latest attack on Tim Michaels and get your reaction to it. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. I know it sounds like a broken record, but another miserable day in the stock market. The Dow Jones, as Alex was just mentioning, down over 500 points. Net, which is about 1.65%. The NASDAQ down 1.5%, uh, down 167 points as stocks continue to crater week after week after week. Uh, this is partly, well, it's, it's partly due to the fact that, again, the, the government has done such a terrible job of managing inflation. The Federal Reserve, way late to the game. The government, uh, in my opinion, the Biden administration's spending over the course of the last year and a half has fueled inflation. The war that has been launched, and I say war in quotation marks, on, on the fossil fuel industry that drove up energy costs for a while. And the Federal Reserve is going to be meeting tomorrow. And at one o'clock, they, I, I guess they meet today, they announce tomorrow that they're going to have another rate hike. Uh, the 30-year mortgage rate is now up above six, and I understand if you bought a house in the if you bought a house in the 70s or 80s, you you would have killed to be able to get a 30-year mortgage for six percent. But th- that's been a dramatic increase, and the thinking is they're going to raise the uh, interest rates somewhere between like three quarters of a percent and maybe as much as one percent. And uh, the fear is that's going to further drive the country into a recession. But uh, it, I'm just telling you, be prepared for when you're quarterly 401k statements come out or your IRA statements come out. And if you only look at them every quarter, it's going to be really, really ugly. The amount of wealth that has disappeared from investors' portfolios. And again, for everybody who says, oh, that's only rich people care about that. No, I think most of us care about that because unless you're 
planning unless you're not planning for retirement at all or unless you're you know all your retirement plans involve a government pension or something like that for most people you take some responsibility and you have to for your own retirement savings and you amass a certain nest egg and that nest egg is a lot smaller just trillions of dollars of wealth have just disappeared over the course of the last year and the numbers continue to get bad and i understand the stock market historically has always come back but you don't know how long it's going to take to come back and you don't know what that's going to do to people who are in retirement or nearing retirement so just another really really bad day out there okay Tim Michaels running for governor. I, I, I've during this election cycle, I've only spoken to him once. I was at an event last week, and he was at the event, and I got a chance. My wife and I got a chance to sit and talk to him for about five or ten minutes. Um, I'm sure I, I, I'm sure I met him when he ran for Senate in 2004, but I don't have a vivid recollection of it. But in any event, we were having a conversation, and one of the questions that I asked, I said, you know, it must be. I've, I've always, I'm always sympathetic that you, you run for office, and merely because you decide to run for office, you find yourself the subject of all these vicious, negative, slimy attack ads uh, intended to dispute your, your character or whatever. And, and, and actually, he and his wife were both, no, no we kind of understand it comes with the territory, which I guess is how you have to be. But I, I've, just, I, I've been struck by, if you turn on the TVs, there's, there's all the attacks on Tim Michaels based on, on his position on abortion. Tim Michaels is pro-life. You can agree with that. You can disagree with that. But he's, he's pro-life. I never in my life thought that we would get to a point in Wisconsin politics and American politics where if you made charitable donations to support what I would consider to be mainstream pro-life organizations like Wisconsin Right to Life, that somehow those contributions, which are designed to discourage people from having abortions, all right, because there are a large percentage of people who believe that, you know, that that's just not the way to go. It never occurred to me that you would have, you know, by donating money or by you know going to a pro-life Wisconsin or a Wisconsin right to life banquet or something, you could somehow suddenly be viewed as this, this evil person who wants to put women in jail and stuff. It's just it is mind boggling that we have come to that. But in this I think day and age. Now it's very clear that that abortion is what Democrats view as a wedge issue, and they're trying to encourage people who want to have the right to unlimited abortion to outweigh, you know, all the economic concerns and things like that. And and so you get the you get these ads out there. And matter of fact, Politifact of all places has just denounced one of the anti Michaels ads. It's the one that says, well. He gave money. His foundation gave money to, you know, they put ankle bracelets on criminals and, you know, they, they track them. And, and he gave money to a group that tracks these women. And the implication is because they want to criminalize it. Well, the, the organization, they, they use cell phone tracking data. And what they do is they then, you know, send pro-life messages encouraging people to consider alternatives to abortion. Heaven forbid they might encourage people to suggest alternatives to abortion. Oh my gosh, stop the presses. But that's kind of where we are with this. So here's, here is the latest attack that um, at least one TV station, Channel 58, ran this. If if you haven't seen it, it'll, it'll be run, I'm sure, by more mainstream media outlets, just like 
you know, the, the donation thing. First, it gets planted with the local newspaper. The local newspapers run it. Then it becomes the headlines that get used in the, the TV ads. It's this very sort of insidious and symbiotic relationship that goes on. All right, Tim Michaels works for and is one of the owners of the found of the of the family business the Michaels Corporation his parents started it he and his brothers have, have built it into a, a really an international corporation um, with all sorts of different branches. It's headquartered up in kind of the Fond du Lac area. They have 8,000 employees worldwide. I know people who work for it. Everybody that I know loves the, loves working for the company. It, it is a it is a true success story that is out there. But it is a big big company. And, you know, Michaels, again, he comes from the private sector, unlike, for example, somebody like Tony Evers, who's, you know, been a state school superintendent and, you know, has been a high school principal or or whatever, who's always worked for the government. Okay, so here's, I want to read you a portion of the story that aired on one of the local TV stations last night. Now, Michaels Corporation, again, worldwide corporation, thousands and thousands of employees. And like I say, it's generally regarded as a pretty solid company. is a very solid company. Female and minority workers who worked for a Brownsville construction company co-owned by Republican gubernatorial candidate Tim Michaels were allegedly subjected to sexual assault and harassment, racial discrimination, and a hostile work environment, according to federal court cases spanning the last two decades. Most of the wide-ranging allegations in five lawsuits filed in the 22-year period between 1998 and 2020, so five lawsuits in 22 years, occurred on job sites in other states, with one in Wisconsin, while Tim Michaels and his brothers ran the company. The Brownsville-based construction group employs more than 8,000 employees. All the lawsuits were eventually settled, including some former employees signing non-disclosure agreements. So so we, we don't know if the cases were dismissed or they're paid off or, or whatever, but it's five court cases in a company involving 8,000 people over 22 years. Federal court documents reveal three former female employees separately sued the company in 1998 and twice in 2012, claiming they faced repeated verbal and at times physical abuse, and some were pressured to have sex with male co-workers. The company was also sued by workers who were black, most recently in 2020, over allegations of racial hostility, including a report of a noose found near a job site. Okay? <clears throat> According to a February 2012 complaint, a male supervisor groped the crotch and inner thigh of a female employee. Um, the complaint further contends after repeated incidents, she reported the allegations to human resources and the male worker involved was placed on paid leave after fellow workers corroborated her claims. So she says she's harassed. She complains and they discipline the harasser. Okay, I, which seems to me how those things are supposed to be resolved. Um, all right, the, uh, then you have a separate case. A female driver claimed her male coworkers spoke about sexual encounters in front of her. Uh, the employee asked her site superintendent if she needed documentation to file a complaint, was told it would be taken care of. Um, then she said she resigned because they, they didn't deal with it enough. Okay, um, so you get... You get the idea, uh, a handful. In 2014 and 2020, two former black employees alleged they faced racial discrimination while working on job sites in Missouri and Pennsylvania. 
Um, in 2020, a male worker claimed his co-workers used the N-word and local police were called to a work site after a noose was found in the area. Company officials say the noose was found beyond the job site. They also denied allegations of racial hostility. So you, you get on and you have clearly over, again, this, this period of time that ranges from this 22-year period year period of time in a giant corporation with thousands and thousands of employees, you have a handful of employees who allege that they have been either sexually harassed or racially discriminated against. They filed lawsuits, and this handful of employees, the lawsuits ended up you know, being resolved and you know settled, and we don't know if there was large payments or small payments or whatever, but it's this huge corporation, and it seems like they're all have been dealt with. Tony Evers, wading into this, says Michaels needs to respond to what happened at the company. Sexual harassment should never be tolerated, and voters deserve answers from Tim Michaels about what went on under his leadership. Um, Okay, the Michaels campaign has issued a statement. I read it in its entirety. These unproven allegations do not reflect the training and the culture at Michaels Corporation. Harassment in the workplace should not be condoned nor tolerated, nor was it under the Michaels Corporation leadership. Michaels Corporation has a sterling reputation as one of Wisconsin's great family-owned businesses with women in positions of leadership. Several generations of the same families, men and women, work their entire careers there. This is a coordinated attack by Evers and his allies in the media. Shame on Governor Evers and others who are trying to destroy the reputation of a great Wisconsin company for political purposes. These smears defame a great company all in the name of politics. There's no place for that garbage here. This election is a referendum on Tony Evers' failed leadership. These smears are a desperate and disgusting attempt to distract voters from Tony Evers' many failures. End of statement. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, your, your reaction. And I guess I, I look at it like this. You, you have a company... A huge company. You, you've got currently 8,000 employees, and, and that they haven't all been there for the last 22 years. So you've got some people that come in. You've got some people that come out. You have over those 8,000-plus employees scattered across the, the country, maybe across the world, you have over the years a relative handful of complaints about this supervisor behaved in an inappropriate fashion or workers on this job site did this or, or whatever. It's not like you have thousands of these complaints. You you have a handful that now appear to be resolved. So let's tee this up. Is this just a cheap smear attempt, or is this something that you know Tim Michaels really needs to explain under his what about what went on under their leadership? And to me, I don't know. It, it seems like the the it seems like, you know, you, you complain to your supervisor, they deal with it. I'm not sure what else people are supposed to do. But it's an attack on Michaels' leadership of the Michaels company, and the implication is that the Michaels company is not a good place to work, um, which I will tell you, everybody I know that works for the Michaels Corporation would tell you that they, they wouldn't trade it for anything. 855-616-1620, your reaction.
855-616-1620. Jeff, this would be a different story if Tim Michaels was accused of sexual harassment. In any large corporation, there will probably always be bad seeds that work there. As long as the corporation handled things in the proper way, this is a complete and total non-issue. My husband and I frequently drive through Brownsville, where the Michaels Corporation is located. The number of signs and support for him there is astronomical. I'm assuming many of those people work for the company or know somebody who does. Seems like he has quite a large following. Well, I think there's this. Jeff, uh, the Evers campaign is reaching for anything they can. And then this texter makes the point that dozens of you have made in your texts as well, which is, I guess, okay, this story was on Channel 58. Here, Here is my question for Channel 58. Maybe I'll be watching tonight. All right. If it's now Tim Michaels, bad guy, because in 22 years you have a handful of people who filed sexual harassment lawsuits or what, whatever against him. Okay, that's fine. Tony Evers has been the governor of the state of Wisconsin for four years. All right, will Channel 58 now assign a reporter to go back and look at the number of complaints, sexual harassment complaints, racial discrimination complaints, whatever, that have been filed by state of Wisconsin employees— over the course of the last four years, because it seems to me it's only fair if this is now going to be an issue. Gee, well, you know, the, the Michaels Corporation, they had a hand. And again, I'm, I'm actually kind of stunned that the, the number of complaints are as small as they seem to be for a corporation the size over the space of 20-some years, especially given the, the nature of some of the, the business and the construction work and things like that that tends to be male-dominated. And let's face it, sometimes guys are pigs. There's no question about it, and it's not condoning it at all. But wouldn't it be interesting to see, all right, if that's the case, you know, how many complaints of sexual harassment have been filed over the course of the last four years by state employees under Tony Evers' leadership? And would that be a fair comparison? Now, my argument would be that unless there is, again, evidence that Tony Evers was responsible or himself or, you know, kicked it, you know, under the rug or something like that, this wouldn't be relevant either. But this is, it seems to me, one of those things that we used to describe as potentially— a you know flagrant act of journalism wouldn't we wouldn't we look at that and then let's go back and let's look when tony evers was the superintendent of schools all right did that for a number of years how many sexual harassment claims were filed in school districts you know that was tony evers's domain that was under his watch did he have a culture that permitted sexual harassment or racial discrimination or whatever. I just, I throw that out there to say, all right, how many of those situations might there have been over the years? Jason, Jason, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? Good. What do you think? Uh, I think, well, you brought up the obvious question, so I'm going to answer that by saying, oink, oink, baby. I'm a male, so as once or twice I might have said something that's lewd or in kind to some female co-worker at some point in time, um, but, but I just think this is a cheap shot at um, well, Mr. I, Michaels. Well, well, Jason, thanks for calling. Look, I mean, if if... <laughs> If, if their sexual harassment in the workplace is wrong, racial discrimination in, in the workplace is wrong. And, you know, the Michaels Corporation, by the way, is very proud of the fact that 
they their culture is to say, no, we are not going to tolerate this, and we're going to end up dealing with it. Now, whenever you've got a business that has 8,000-plus employees at any given time, your stuff like this goes on. That's not the issue. The question is, how do you end up dealing with these things? Is it a cultural thing, or is it, okay, we've got bad employees, or is it, you know, sometimes— You've got employees who perceive certain things, and the truth is somewhat different. But again, it's this idea that you're going to attack this wonderful company. Okay, fine. If that is now the standard, let's have that flagrant act of journalism. Tony Evers ran the State Department of Public Instruction for how many years? Let's see how many harassment claims there were that were filed against local school districts. That was under his jurisdiction. Let's see over the last couple of years how many employees for the state of Wisconsin have, fired, have filed this. And my guess is, and it is just a guess, but my guess is if you look at areas where Tony Evers was running over the course of the last 22 years, you, you might find that the numbers are comparable, if not substantially greater. Now, does that mean that Tony Evers is somebody who condones you know, sexual harassment and stuff? No. And it doesn't mean that Michaels is either. This is, again, just, I lump this in the same category of who would have ever thought that you donate money to your church or you donate you know, money to, like I say, a mainstream anti-abortion group like Wisconsin Right to Life, and that is somehow going to become an issue in a campaign with all the dark sort of music. And I I think, you know, stuff like this backfires. I still, at the end of the day, think the abortion acts are going to backfire. And stuff like this, I think, is really going to backfire because my guess is the response is you're going to be hearing from a lot of Michael's Corporation employees who are going to be talking about really what a good place it is to work and how political attacks like this well, just really should be beneath the media, and it perhaps should be beneath the other side. Okay, now, Alex, work with me for a minute. Did, did you say, <laughs> you know what story I'm going to ask you about, probably? Yeah, oh, yeah. The cooking chicken in NyQuil? I don't know. I'm not a big TikTok guy, Jeff. I'm, I assume you're not either. So, uh, no, this, this I, I, is... I look at those TikTok challenges and think, no, I'm not going to do so No, this... I'm not going to eat Tide Pods or things <laughs> like that. No, okay, so... This made its way over to Twitter, and then it eventually made its way to uh, the FDA, who, of course, had to put out an official statement saying, yes, there are videos where teenagers are boiling chicken in NyQuil. So instead of using water, they're using cold medicine, essentially, to uh, boil chicken. And there's... Okay, now let me me stop you for just a second. (laughs) Okay, why? (laughs) I haven't made it that far along to figure out why. I would assume to get everybody talking like this. Okay, so, I mean, of of all the different things that you could boil chicken (laughs) in, I'm just sitting here wondering why why you would pick cough medicine. Okay, all right, all right, so we we don't know why. So they they boil the the chicken in NyQuil. I think it's just to make people laugh like this or to make people talk and say, why would you do that? But the FDA is saying, even if you're going to do this for some sort of stupid, funny video, you're still boiling cough medicine, and it still obviously poses a risk to you, even if uh, you know you're so 16 years old and not thinking that far ahead. So, in other words, it, it's not good to cook a chicken in cough medicine. <laughs> <laughs> that, who'd have thought, right? Who'd, who'd who'd have thought, right? Who'd have thought it's not good to do? Who'd have thought that you shouldn't be eating those those those, those laundry soap Tide Tide pods and you know uh, Tide pods and things like that? I was going to say this one will go up there with the Tide pods for sure. Boiling uh, boiling chicken and Nyquil together. I guess. See, the thing about this, well, there's many things about this, but I guess there, there's some stuff that I wouldn't do, but I understand why <laughs> you know people might do it. But but then there's other stuff that it's just it would never in the world occur to me to cook a chick to boil a chicken <laughs> in in NyQuil. It just wouldn't. 
I found a video of someone doing it. They didn't eat it, but I found a video of someone uh, actually boiling a chicken in NyQuil, which, again, is where they say, don't do it. You can see it bubbling up and getting all nasty. And, uh, yeah, apparently you're not supposed to boil cough medicine. Let those fumes get who, all over the who, house. Who, who would have known you're not supposed to boil cough medicine? Stop the presses. And just so, before we get the inevitable text, we, we are talking about, like, like a, a, a dead chicken. We're not talking about people throwing a live chicken in the pot with NyQuil and stuff, yeah, right? No, that's how they're cooking up their already dead chicken that they're preparing to eat. Okay. Yeah, you're making it in NyQuil now. All right. Well, the bottom line is it's stupid, it's dangerous, don't do it, I, I guess, which <laughs> I guess so. summarizes a whole boatload of stuff that you see on Twitter or TikTok. It's stupid, it's dangerous, don't do it. When we come back, all right, the final Jeopardy answer is 756. I will give you the question in just a moment. Okay, I want those three minutes of my life back. I just spent that break looking, doing my internet research on on the TikTok challenge of, they call it sleepy chicken, you know, and, and yes, the FDA has come out with a warning of this. I, I, I'm not even going to insult your intelligence by telling you all the reasons why this is a really, really bad thing to do. Needless to say, um, just, just don't try this. Don't try this at home. Um, there, there's just no response to it. Here, one of our texters, uh, this is Andy, with the cost of chicken and cough medicine at recent highs. Oh, never mind. You know, it's just, suffice to say, I'm glad that I am as old as I am because the world really is becoming quite a crazy place, indeed. Um, yes, yes. Okay, the final Jeopardy answer is 756, 756. The question would be, how many million gallons of wastewater was dumped into Lake Michigan, Wilson Park Creek, the Kinnikinick River, and the Milwaukee River on September 10th and 11th? You know, we had the monster rainstorm, the deep tunnel reached capacity, and rather than having stuff back up into people's basement, they, they dumped. This at 756 million gallons of wastewater was dumped. The overflow was nearly double the total of all the overflows in 2021, which tallied 390 million gallons. Uh, the rain added up to an average of 4.78 inches across the area. Some communities got as much as 7 inches. Um, while most of the 756, this is the Journal Sentinel, million gallons released during the sewer overflow were likely made up by a mix of groundwater and water from storm sewers, there is a chance of other things that is untreated sewage as well. So the example I always give is if you're if you're in a bathtub, okay, that's like the wastewater, but you don't want to be seeing a floater in there, right? I mean, it's just that the one floater in that bathtub is just going to spoil your, your entire day. Now, I want to open the phone lines because I want to have a brief conversation about this and I want to be real clear here. I I am not a critic of MMSD. MMSD, in my opinion, does the best that they can. Decades ago, and let me just give the quick history for people who might be new to the area. 
decades ago, there was a lot more dumping, overflowing that, that occurred. And so there were two there was two ways that, that we could go in the community. One is you could build this deep tunnel. And when you had these big storm events, the deep tunnel would be like a holding tank. And the idea is it would hold the water until it could be treated, right? The other option was to take the storm sewers in Milwaukee and in parts of Shorewood, which are combined with the sanitary sewers. So for people who don't understand it, in most communities, what happens is the the sanitary sewer, the bath water, the shower water, your toilets— that goes into a separate sewer system, a sanitary sewer, where it goes to be treated because obviously, you know, it's got stuff in it. The storm sewers in most communities are are separate from the sanitary sewers. So the storm sewers, the water, the rainwater, for example, comes down and it, it runs off your roof or it runs off your driveway and it goes into the storm sewer where it's not treated. It just, you know, goes out to the river or goes out where it is. Storm, as a general rule, it doesn't hurt to treat, you know, storm water, water that's come down by the storm, but you don't need to do it. I mean, it doesn't hurt to do it, but you don't need to do it. You need to treat the sanitary stuff, right? Because that's got the, you know, the people who've gone to the bathroom and stuff like that. Well, in Milwaukee, parts of Milwaukee, not all of Milwaukee, and parts of Shorewood, the sewer systems, because these areas are old, are combined. So all the rainwater that comes down, it goes into the same system that the sanitary sewer is. And that all goes into, now it goes into the deep tunnel, where it has to be treated, because you've got to treat the sanitary stuff. We made the decision decades ago, because the decision, the thinking was it was going to be too expensive for the city of Milwaukee. So we're going to spend all this money, and we're going to build the deep tunnel, and we're going to use it as a holding thing, instead of requiring the city of Milwaukee and parts of Shorewood to separate the storm sewers from the sanitary sewers. The problem with this is that when you get huge rainfalls, like we had you know, a week and a half ago or whatever that was, a week ago, the, the deep tunnel, you can't build it big enough. You can't build the holding tank big enough because you've got all that rainwater that is pouring in and combining now with the stuff from the sanitary sewers. And you're never going to be able to build a tunnel that, that's, that's big enough to handle four or five inches of rain. That's just that's the reality. So the deep tunnel works as it is supposed to work. It acts as a holding thing. It's just not big enough or deep enough to handle these major events, which means the only choice is either you dump, you know, uh, the the partially treated, partially treated wastewater into like Lake Michigan or the river or whatever, or you let it back up in people's basements. And you can't let it back up in people's basements, so you have the, these dumping incidents: seven hundred and fifty-six million gallons of. Stormwater combined with sanitary sewer stuff dumped into the lake. Our number is 855-616-1620. And again, this is not a criticism of MMSD. They, they do the best they can with the deep tunnel. But in this era where we are so concerned with, uh, and rightly so, with the environment and pollution and stuff like that, how we continue 
to allow sewer systems, the sanitary sewer system, to be combined with the storm sewer system is just crazy to me. It's it's absolutely crazy because if if you're troubled by 756 million gallons of untreated water that does contain stuff from the sanitary sewers going into our lakes and waterways, the only way you're going to reduce that in any significant way is by separating the storm sewers from the sanitary sewers. And there might still be some problems because some of the the lines, groundwater leaks into them and all. But the bigger problem is, you know, you get four inches of rain, it's pouring down, and it's being funneled directly into the combined sewer system, and the deep tunnel just can't hold it. 855-616-1620. Look, it is way past time for Milwaukee to either bite the bullet or be made to bite the bullet and say, you know, this this has to be a priority, separating storm sewers from sanitary sewers, because unless and until we do this, you know, don't talk to me about other forms of lake pollution and stuff, because this th- this is 756 million gallons of partially treated wastewater getting dumped into our waterways. 855-616-1620. Jeff, my father was a surveyor, civil engineer, and he constantly complained as Milwaukee resurfaced the roads, they were not separating the storm and sanitary sewers. For many years, I heard complaining that they were making a huge mistake. Yeah, it like, like at my house... Where I I live, there's the storm sewer. So the water that runs off the driveway, the water that comes down a rainwater, the water that runs off the roof, it all goes into the storm sewer, and it's not treated. It goes to wherever it goes, rivers or or whatever. But it doesn't need to be treated. The the sanitary sewer, the bath water, the shower water, the toilet water, that needs to be treated, and, and that goes into a separate place. As long as Milwaukee continues to have combined sewers, and it's not all throughout the city, and Shore and parts of Shorewood, the older parts of Shorewood, the dumping is going to continue, which raises the question of how much longer are we going to put up with this? Kevin in Milwaukee. Kevin, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Thanks Kevin. For having me on. Sure. Hey, I just wanted to say that um, 10 years ago, I used to work at the top or the upper floors of the U.S. Bank building, and we had a big storm one August, I remember, and they released that raw sewage, and I watched it you know, get released into the harbor. And it is the grossest, most vilest water and gray matter that you've ever seen. And it's all in the harbor, and then it's going out to the opening there where the breakwater opens up and out into the open lake. And, you know, that was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. They've been doing it every year, a couple times a year, however many times. It's just amazing to me. I was railing about it 10 years ago, and, you know, 10 years later, we're still, nothing's been done, and it's just amazing that we allow our water to be... Well, well, and Kevin, the the, the ultimate irony of this is, if if you're in a small boat on Lake Michigan, and you take your portable toilet, you know, that's on that small boat, that has maybe a couple gallons or whatever, and you dump that into the water, you are going to be looking at such a monster fine from either the EPA or the DNR or, or whatever, and, and appropriately, as you should, but yet this is this is the system that we've set up right. here. No, uh, no, thanks. It's ridiculous. No. Yeah, no, thanks for the call. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. But that's, I mean, and again, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that people who, like, dump their portable toilets into Lake Michigan shouldn't receive monster fines. Of, of course they should. And again, I want to be real clear. I, 
MMSD does the best that they possibly can. I get it. But the deep tunnel system is a flawed idea. Has it reduced the numbers of overflows? Of course. But, you know, we we spent hundreds of millions or billion dollars, however much it costs. So you expect that it would reduce that. But all the while, it's not enough to have the deep tunnel. Systematically, we we need to get rid of these combined sewer systems because unless and until we do that, this is going to continue to happen. Mike in Menominee Falls. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Um, I was a village trustee in Menominee Falls in charge. I was a village trustee in Menominee Falls in charge of the sewer, water, streets, and things of that nature. Or geez, over 23 years. And about 30 years ago, they came in front of us demanding that we would separate our in the older part of the village, the the water from the stormwater from the sewer for us mm-hmm. to hook into the MMSD, right. which we went ahead and did. It cost us millions and millions of dollars for a small community. And I asked them, I asked Kevin, well, Kevin, what about the city of Milwaukee, that deep tunnel? That doesn't work on high overflow. A little bit that we're putting in is going to be not that significant. And he said, well, it's going to be significant enough to make a difference. And I said, why don't you guys do the same thing? Well, we can't afford it. I said, so <laughs> yeah. you're telling me it's a small community of 30,000 people with, with limited resources and limited users are going to put the bill over millions, and you with hundreds of thousands of people, with hundreds of thousands more opportunities to be able to generate enough revenue, can't do it. So the hypocrisy, in my opinion, is rather severe. And the biggest problem I don't think anybody really truly understands is the intake valve for our city is a Lake Michigan water, which the ring communities are taking advantage of now as well as the city. That is not more than a quarter mile, half mile away from where the outflow is. Yeah. So there is <laughs> potential raw sewage coming into our drinking water every time where these overflows occur. And there's ample enough room now in the city of Milwaukee with all the, the barren areas throughout the city. They could build the detention ponds for stormwater like we have done throughout the entire Menominee Falls right. with all the new development. And it has definitely stemmed the flooding issue that we would have definitely had 25, 30 years ago in this past rainfall, very little flooding. So there's ways to mitigate it. Right, if, if you want to. Instead of telling other people to do stuff, they got to start doing it themselves. Mike, thank, thanks for the call and thanks for the perspective. And I, I mean, I, I've been railing about this for the 20 plus years I've been on the radio here because, I, again, it, it's not an anti-deep tunnel thing. It does the best it can. It's a flawed system. And we, unless and until Milwaukee gets its act together and separates the remaining storm sewers from the sanitary sewers, 756 million gallons of, of partially treated wastewater dumped into the environment. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Alex Crow just had the least surprising story of the day. I don't know if you've been following it, but um, Friday evening, around so 7.20 at night, Police in down in Kenosha last Friday night, police get this call of a quote unquote suspicious person who is apparently damaging vehicles at random and attempting to force his way into several homes down in Kenosha. The intruder forced his way into one of the houses and attacked the homeowner. Police say the homeowner fought back and the intruder was subsequently killed during the struggle. They haven't released, um, you know, any of the details, but I think I think the homeowner killed him with a knife. Is what some of the reporters reports I said, as opposed to a gun. But anyhow, the the least surprising story of the day is the police are saying that they're uh, not going to be referring 
any potential criminal charges against the homeowner and the district attorney is saying that he didn't anticipate that there were charges being filed going forward. My information to the Notion Police Department is that they anticipate there'll be no referral and um, seems to me pretty clear. He said all indications are that the homeowner defended himself against the attack in his own home when his own home had been illegally entered. The DA says under those circumstances, doesn't appear to me that there's any reason why there would be a criminal charge. Yeah, that is that that's the correct decision. It's also the least surprising decision of the day. I mean, can you? I'm just trying. Can you imagine that though? You're it, it's seven. 20 on a, on a Friday evening, and maybe you're getting ready to go out to your fish fry, you come back from the fish fry, you're, you're settling in or whatever to, I don't know, watch baseball or whatever you're going to watch on Friday night on television, and all of a sudden somebody busts through your door or window or whatever and starts a struggle with you. It's just... I, yes, I, no criminal charges. I think that's, that's probably the textbook answer to the response. All right. I want to talk about the, the border. And I, I want to try to get beyond sort of the, the sound and fury that's been going on. You know, Donald Trump, of course, made border security a huge issue for the four years that he was in office. Joe Biden, in running against Trump, used the border, saying, oh, look, look, Trump is just out of control with this whole border stuff. And, and he used it as a wedge issue, saying that Trump had, had overreacted. Since Biden took over— uh, the, the border has gotten progressively more out of control. I mean, here's the numbers just—I've uh, mean, I, I've got an article in the New York Times. So New York Times is going to be as Biden-friendly as possible. But So this is where these numbers come from. The number of the arrests at the border, um, they say for the first 11 months of the fiscal year 2022, which would be—that's—that's— October 1st through the end of this month. So that's the fiscal year. So October 1st of 2021 through, um, again, through the end of August, the there were a total of 2.1 million people in those 11 months that were arrested illegally trying to enter the, the country. Um, that is like an all-time high. The Biden administration says that of that 2.1 million, they about a million have been returned to where they came from, right? Of the rest, it's kind of tough to track them, but the Biden administration acknowledges that about a million, maybe slightly less, but about a million have been released into this country while they are awaiting judicial proceedings. So, for example, the way it works is if you come into this country illegally and you say, I want asylum, right, the the way the law works is you cannot be automatically sent back. You have to be kept here until there's—you you have a hearing. Problem is— the, the hearings, there, there's nowhere near enough administrative law judges. The, the, the hearings are backed up months and months and months and months and months, and there's no—we don't have the facilities to detain 
all these people who have come in illegally but have claimed asylum, even though the vast majority of them aren't going to get asylum, they're going to be sent back. But what happens is, what what happens, what do you do with them while they're, they're waiting, the six months, the eight months, the year? So in general, they are just released. And the problem is, once they're released, they just they just disappear into the countryside. And the chances of them coming back for their, their asylum hearing are slim to none, and, and slim is often on a bus leaving town. So you have this huge problem with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who are just dispersing into the, the, this country. And as we have talked about before, it's a huge problem for the border. Here in in southeastern Wisconsin, it's more of an intellectual exercise. We are not overwhelmed with, you know, people coming in illegally from Canada or whatever. We're, we're not on the border. But if you talk to people who are on the border, they will tell you it is just an absolute nightmare with people, you know, pouring across the the borders. I have— you know, one of the stories I have is that this that these people own a restaurant that's um, right on the border. It's been a family restaurant for 20-some years. They, they've been busted into like a half a dozen times over the course of the last couple months. And it's people who've entered the country illegally who are breaking in or committing the crimes. And I'm not suggesting, of course, that everybody who comes into this country illegally is criminal. But the problem is the border is overwhelmed. And effectively, what we have now is a system where— if not open borders, pretty darn close to open borders, because we have lost control of this. And, of course, now you've got some Republican governors, you know, DeSantis in Florida and Abbott in Texas and the governor of Arizona. They are trying to call attention to this, and they're getting a lot of attention by, you know, busing these people who are in the country illegally, you know, busing them up to Chicago or Washington, D.C., or the plane trip to Martha's Vineyard or New York City that now has all these sanctuary city mayors who are freaked out because, hey, 50 people, you know, came to, to Martha's Vineyard when you've got, you know, thousands and thousands that are along the border. I, I don't—I I guess I'm kind of bored with the, the tactic that's being used to call attention to this issue, and that, that's a whole other topic. But there, there is this, this issue— of the border being out of control. And, and that's, so I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, I think it, it's it's almost impossible to argue that with people streaming across the border on a daily basis, what the, the estimates are that there's like 5,000 people or something arrested on a daily basis nowadays. And, and even if you get arrested and sent back to like Mexico, well, chances are you're going to be coming back a few days later or a couple weeks later. And I'm not even talking about the whole idea where you've got the human traffickers and the coyotes who are bringing people across, you know, and re- risking their lives. But We've we got a border crisis. Our number is 855-616-1620, and that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I don't want to talk about—again, I don't again, I don't care about the busloads of people being sent to these different states. That that's, that's political, as is the response. I want to talk about the problem itself, because the truth of the matter is— it hasn't gotten better over the last several years, and I think it's impossible to argue that it also has gotten to deny the fact that it's gotten a lot worse under Joe Biden because he sent all these messages that I'm going to be different than Trump and, you know, America is welcoming and stuff. And we got a country, particularly on the southern border, that is being absolutely overwhelmed. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let me ask this provocative question. Should, should we just do— what a lot of 
like the members of the squad, and I think Mandela Barnes and stuff would like to see, where we just throw up our hands and say, hey, come on in. We're we're not even going to try to restrict this anymore. Or do we need the flip side of this, which is to be very, very aggressive, and when we catch people, sending them back and sending them back right away. And that might mean you have to change the laws on requests for asylum and things like that. But can we continue to allow what is happening now on the border to continue to happen? And I guess my answer would be no, 855-616-1620. And then my second answer would be there's no way in God's green earth that we can essentially just allow our southern border to become completely open. This country will be overwhelmed. 855-616-1620. What are we to do? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Okay, here's one of our texts. Jeff, there are twice as many jobs available than unemployed workers in the United States. We desperately need more immigrants. What's the problem? Well, I'll tell you that the, the problem, and this is what underscores the, the complete and total failure of U.S. immigration policy. The U.S. needs willing workers, no question about it. And some of the people who are, are coming into this country really are fleeing persecution. But... Our policy right now allows too many economic migrants, that's what the Wall Street Journal says, to come into the country and claim asylum. And so they continue to come by hundreds of thousands from around the world. And Biden has sent every signal saying they should keep coming. And as a result of that, you have the entire system, which has become absolutely overwhelmed. Wall Street Journal has a piece, you know, you listen to the mayor of New York complaining or the mayor of Chicago complaining or the people in Martha's Vineyard complaining. Well, here's the deal. Yuma, Arizona is a city of about 100,000 people. They have had more than 250,000 migrants who have arrived in the area, two and a half times the city the city's population. And it's like, okay, deal with this. Wait, you, you can't deal with this. I mean, it's it's imagine imagine if Milwaukee, Wisconsin was on a border and Milwaukee's with six hundred thousand, and if suddenly over the course of the last year we had one point five million people pouring in, you know, illegally into this country demanding um, asylum, and we were simply told, I mean, you got the mayor of Milwaukee right now who's saying, I don't have enough money to, I've got to cut police officers. Okay, so how how are we supposed to deal with that? So it's it's a complete and total, at least in my opinion, failure of our economic economic of our entire immigration policy but to just allow this to go on and on it's just it's a completely and totally unwinning proposition isn't it let's talk to chris on the south side chris you're on wtmj hey jeff Um, excellent excellent point um the migration of the illegal immigrants coming up usually is more expedient because there's less services provider used to be. So they would make that transport up north here quicker. It would happen mm-hmm. faster. Now it's a slow spin because there's just more services offered. So that overwhelming of the border is going to keep happening, and then it's going to eventually migrate, right? That's what they did. They migrated from South America. They're going to migrate from those states, Arizona, Texas, they're going to migrate sure. up here and overwhelm our systems, too. And you nailed it right on the, right on the head. I mean, I grew up on the south side, and, you know, went to a went to South Division, you know, bilingual school, and, you know, the system could support it then. Now it, it can't support 
all of that coming in so quickly, it, 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 we're not built for it. Right. And it's going to be a breakdown, and it's going to be a bad one, and it's happening already on the border states, and it's going to be, it's bad. Yeah, it is. No, th- thanks. So. How and, and do you so, keep up with it? Well, right. No, thanks. So. I mean, here, here, here's what you need to do. And, and first of all, you need to change the laws with regard to asylum. And, and that is that you need to put lim- – just because you get into this country illegally and you say, I want to have asylum, right? Like I say, the vast majority of people who make that claim, they're not going to be entitled to asylum. But you, you can't just allow people to stay in this country while they're waiting for the asylum hearings. One of our texters says, I actually helped a person seeking asylum – nine years ago to navigate the system. It took five years before she received a hearing. I can't imagine what the backlog is like today. Yeah, and, and so that that's the effect. You get into this country, even if you don't have a valid claim for asylum, which is what most of these are, you, you, you are released into the country until such a time as you get a hearing scheduled, which... Maybe it's it's four or five years down the road. So meanwhile, you're you're in this country, and a lot of the people have then just kind of like disappeared. You don't find them anyways. So I, I appreciate that we have we have labor shortages, and I appreciate that there are jobs, for example, that people who come to this country do that for whatever reasons Americans don't want to do. So if if there's a path for people who want to work and are willing to work and and whether it's a green card I I think that's different than citizenship I'm I I'm I the idea of like giving people who enter this country illegally an opportunity it's one thing to say do you want to let people stay here it's another thing to to give them citizenship which is completely and totally different but I I do know that you can't have a system that just allows people to to pour in willy-nilly. And and you're seeing that. I mean, the Biden administration admits that there's like a million people that they have just released into the country that we're never or probably never going to find again, or we're not going to find the vast majority of those people because they're they're never going to show up for the hearings. We don't end up tracking them. You can't build enough detention camps, and I'm not even arguing that. What needs to happen is they need to be turned back. They need to not be allowed to stay in this country. And if you want to get to the border and apply for asylum and then wait wherever you are until you get your hearing, that, that's one thing. But the message we're sending now is come to this country, come illegally, take all the risks, do whatever, and, and once you get here, wink, wink, nod, nod, you might be sent back, but you probably won't. And meanwhile, we try to figure out how, how we deal with all the, the consequences of that. And for everybody out there who's saying, well, you know, what, what, what do we care about this? Again, just picture if two and a half times the size of the city of Milwaukee poured into surrounding areas, expecting to be taken care of with social services and assistance and things like that. Uh, Imagine what our reaction around here would be, and that's precisely what border cities deal with on a daily basis. We've got to do better, and it does start with closing the border. And I I never bought into the kind of build the the physical wall, but we, we have to do everything we can to discourage people from coming into this country illegally. When they get here, we have to be able to turn them back and keep them from coming back until we've established an orderly process where people can come in. No major country in this world allows open borders, and we shouldn't either. Okay, so Alec, you know what I'm doing tonight? What would that be, Jeff? Going to the baseball game. Hey, nice. There you go. Going to the ball game. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, The Brewers right now, for that last wild card spot, they're 
they're technically two and a half games behind the Phillies and three games behind San Diego. But but actually, since they lost the season, season series to both, they're really they said if there's a tie, if they end up tied, they lose. Yeah. So they're really they gotta they have they've got 14 games left. Philadelphia has 16 games left, and the Brewers have to pick up. That would mean really four games on a couple on the in Phillies. there, yeah. And probably, well, four games, three and a half on Philadelphia and four games on San Diego. Can they do it? It, It's going to be a tight one. I don't think they've got, you know, I think they've got it in them, but I don't see it happening with uh, the other teams that are around them. They've been right on the heels of San Diego for a little while now, right? And all of a sudden the Phillies in that mix as well. What do you think? Well, See, it's a tough question because they could, but do you think they will personally? I just don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, I know yeah. I, might get, uh, I might get some hate for that no, one. No, but no, just, no, I'm, no, I'm, it's real. Know. I mean, okay, so here, here's what I figure. I, I figure ninety. if they win 90 games, that's going to pretty much assure that they're going to get in. Unfortunately, right now they're 78 and 69. So to win 90, that means they'd have to go 12 and 2 over the remainder of the season. And I've seen... Nothing that they've done this so far this year that convinces me that they can go twelve and two, including the fact that they've got two games at home against St. Louis next week and two games <laughs> still left against the, the New York Mets. So, I, I, I don't know. I'm. I mean, they, they need to get really hot, and I don't know that they're. I don't know that they can get hot. That's what baseball is. If you get hot at the right time, you can get in. But uh, like you said, some tough opponents and. Uh, I don't know. There's not just tough opponents in their schedule, but tough opponents that they're going up against in that wild card rankings. There are a lot of good teams in there that'll be competing. Well, I guess the bottom line of all this is of their remaining uh, the remaining games. What did I say? They have they have 14 games left, I believe, and 10 of those are at home. And I've got tickets to four of them. So I, I, I want them to be competitive <laughs> because I, I want to go to the games and I enjoy it and I like rooting them on. But um I don't. I don't know. I think it's. I'm. I'm going to be a fan. I'm going to cheer them on, and that's the way people should be about it. But I'm. If I was a betting guy, and by the way, I am a betting guy. I, I'm. I, I don't. I don't think the odds favor them, but I would love to be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, and like you said, uh, you're going to enjoy it no matter what. You'll be sitting there in uh, the winter time, wishing you could go to a Brewers game. So you'll you'll be enjoying it no matter what happens. A- absolutely, and I'll, I'll bring my credit card to the stadium, and I'll buy my beer tonight, and I'll I'll be all set when we come back. What do you think he was really thinking? I'll explain. We'll discuss. I am always intrigued with the why of things. So why why does somebody do something? And, and sometimes it, it's self-evident. Yeah, this is, I mean, okay, we were talking earlier about this TikTok challenge. If you weren't listening, this is the latest thing, kind of like the kids eating Tide Pods, Tide Pods, where you take a chicken and boil it in like NyQuil, like cough medicine. And that, that's that's very bad. Do not do that. Do not try that at home. But I mean, it's like, okay, why why do you do that? Do you think you're being clever? You know, it, it's like the folks that are out there with the here, you know, hold my beer, watch this. Okay, why do you run onto the field at Lambeau Field and take your pants off and streak and get arrested so you're going to be looking at $5,000 in fines? Why, why, why do you why do you do that? And I mean, sometimes I guess the answer is because alcohol is involved. And I, I'm always, in, again, it, it's the why of things. And there is a national story that I, I and I, maybe we've discussed this before a few weeks ago, but I, I, I talk about this when we're talking politics with my friends because it is, it, it's the why that I freely acknowledge I still do not have a handle on. 
many of the problems that Donald Trump had when he was president, I, I think, were, were self-inflicted problems, you know, because of his ego and arrogance and, and things like that. He just he couldn't let stuff go. And I think if, if he could have let stuff go instead of feeling this this need to retaliate all the time, I think the presidency would have been more successful. I mean, so so it's like, OK, why did you feel the need to, to do that or this? And sometimes you understand. I mean, it's kind of like, well, sometimes there's there's fights you pick and it's like I'm, I'm picking this fight because I think it's worthwhile, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I, I understand that. I will tell you for the life of me that one of the the things that I still do not understand is that this whole thing about these classified documents in in Florida at at his place. And and it's the why. And again, I, I don't. I don't want to get into the argument about, well, did he have a right to have them or did he declassify this or, or, or whatever. If you everything that's coming out is there were clear warning signs over the course of the last, you know, going on two years um, at, with regard to whether it was, you know, not taking them in the first place or, you know, once you get the requests to give them back, not giving them back or, you know, telling him that all the documents have gone back when apparently that wasn't. To, to me, that is when whether you think it's the basis or should be the basis for an indictment or, or whatever, that's that's not what interests me right now. Maybe if that actually happens, it'll be an interesting conversation. But to me, the most interesting thing is still the why. Why did he take them in the first place? I mean, seriously, why why did he take these documents in the first place? Because it doesn't seem to me that, I, I don't know, that these were necessarily documents that were in the presidential library or going to go into the presidential library or stuff. It just, I, I don't understand, I guess, why you would go down this route, whether it leads to criminal charges or not. At, at the very least, you know, it's led to, all sorts of arguably bad publicity and having to hire all sorts of lawyers, and, and now you're in this big fight over whether you were allowed to have them and whether it's a crime or whatever. I am intrigued by the, the more fundamental question is, why do you think he took them and then kept them in the first place? 855-616-1620. Was there something you think he wanted to do with these documents? Like, I, I don't know, sell them, Did he, which I, I find impossible to believe. Um, were these documents that be, you think he might wanted to, I don't know, just show to friends? Look, here's this this letter from so-and-so. Was it a situation where he ended up with them, maybe, you know, inadvertently, and then just didn't want to return them? You know, because, you know, who are you to ask for them? But why pick this particular fight? Why do you think President Trump, former President Trump, had these in the first place and didn't kind of return them over the last year and a half, leading us to the daily drip of stories about, oh, is he going to be indicted or not? 855-616-1620. Why did this happen? You see, I don't want to, at least in this conversation, argue about how significant it was that Trump took the documents and didn't return them and whether that's indictable or not. That, that's a conversation for another day. I'm just, I, I admit it, I'm fascinated by why, 
why he took them and why he retained them. There's a story in the New York Times today. Uh, A one-time White House lawyer under President Donald J. Trump warned him late last year that he could face legal liability if he didn't return government materials he had taken with him after he left office. The lawyer, Eric Hirschman, sought to impress upon Mr. Trump the seriousness of the issue and the potential for investigations and legal exposure if he did not return the documents, particularly any classified material. The account of the conversation is a latest evidence that Mr. Trump had been informed of the legal perils of holding on to the materials that is now at the heart of the Justice Department's criminal investigation. In January, not long after the discussion with the lawyer, Mr. Trump turned over to the National Archives 15 boxes of materials he had taken with him from the White House. Those boxes turned out to contain 184 classified documents. But Mr. Trump continued to hold on to a considerable cache of other documents, including some with high security classification, until returning some under subpoena in June and having more seized during the court-authorized search warrant. Again, to me, the intriguing question is, why did you take them? And then, you know, why did you why did you keep them? And, and that's what I admit I, I wrestle with, because all this other stuff is would have been avoidable. And it would just seem to me that, I don't, I don't know, most people would just, you know, not, this isn't one way or the other, even if it turns out that you're vindicated or, or you're not charged or whatever, why why do you want to, why would you keep them? Why, why do you want to go down this particular rabbit hole? Let me just share some of the texts that are coming in. Jeff, I feel Trump kept these documents to clear his name. He's been under investigation for the last six years. I just don't know that there's anything in those documents that do that. Um, Jeff, possible explanations. They incriminate his opponents, including the FBI. Um, well, I don't know about that. Um, Jeff, who really knows? Trump is just a cat with different stripes. Why does he do anything? Uh, <laughs> well, that's there, there. There is there is an element of that, and I, I he is a he is a cat with different stripes. There's just no question about this. Jeff, Trump wants to keep him and his name relevant. Any news, even bad press, keeps people like you talking about him so he can be a relevant candidate in a year or so. I'm amazed that you don't see this and through this. Now, see, one thing I can tell you is I understand there's that saying that that there's no such thing, there's no bad press. Well, the only people that say that are people that, that haven't had bad press. And I will tell you, it's not just bad press, but it's you have to hire a whole bunch of lawyers and there's the chance that you can get indicted or all these things. I, I just I don't understand why anybody willingly wants to go down that route unless you have a really good reason for taking that risk. Jeff, I think he thinks he doesn't have to play by the rules. Um, I think he's the bully in the sandbox, and they gave him a chance to fix it with no consequences, but he refused to do that, a completely self-absorbed person. Jeff, maybe he wanted to make things as difficult as possible for the next administration. Well, I don't think there's any doubt about that, but I'm not sure how this gets him there. Um, let's see, uh, Jeff, um, and then somebody's talking about how, you know, if he was in the Navy and if he took classified documents, he'd be in the brig. Um, Jeff, I think he took them because he thought they were cool and he could show them to his friends at cocktail parties. There is that, that theory 
that, that surround there. Jeff, I think Trump took them, so when he writes his book, he can say it's true, and I have the documents to prove it. Jeff, it's simple. I think it's because he believes he's above the law or the rules. He he's always will be. Putting himself first is all he knows. Um, what a disaster this could become. What could become a disaster for him? And I, that that's the other thing. When you've got lawyers, regardless of how you feel about lawyers, but when you've got all these lawyers saying, Mr. President, Mr. Trump, this this could be a really big deal, you know. And you know, it, it's just is is this the what's the the cliche? Is this the hill that you really want to die on? Is this the fight that you want to end up having with these these particular documents, which you may be entitled to keep or you may not be able to be entitled to keep? But do you, do you want to? Is this worth having that fight? And if it is worth having the fight, then I'm curious as to why it is that he thought it's worth going through all that he's doing. I, You know, one of our texters says something, and I, I think it might come down to that in two words. It's extreme hubris. And I think there's there is that element, because love Donald Trump, hate Donald Trump, don't care. I think we could all agree that he's— does not suffer from from hubris, and I I could easily see him taking those documents and then just keeping them. And when he was told he had to return them, just digging his uh, feet in the sand and say, "Who, who heels in the sand?" and saying, "Who who is this guy? Who is the National Archives to tell me I have to give them back?" and just being willing to pick this fight. I just for me, I, there, there's a lot of fights out there that are worth picking, and in those cases, you pick them. I just this particular one. And maybe we'll learn more moving forward. But this particular one just seems to be to be a, a bizarre dispute. And if you're going to put yourself in potential legal jeopardy, you'd think that it would be over something big, not something like this. Time will tell.